looking, I was looking at a case there, or cases over the last couple of weeks, but one of the ones that I was looking at was a recent case on what we call in the business nervous shock, which is a very old-fashioned kind of term, but basically to do with circumstances under which you can actually take a case where you have psychological or psychiatric injury as a result of an act of negligence by somebody. Okay. So it's it's that area of law where, you know, if, for example, you're, uh, you attend the scene of an accident or something, you come on upon an accident. I mean, normally, if you're in an accident and you're one of the victims of the accident, you have a situation where you can issue proceedings against somebody if that other person is guilty of negligence. So we're all, we're all very familiar with that area. Mm. But the one that, that we're looking at here, well, firstly, before you talk about the what what kind of been called secondary kind of victims of accidents, you know what I mean, the people that come come upon them. But the other one is the whole area of psychiatric injury. I mean, I remember when I started about seventy years ago, and um, the whole area of you know psychiatric injury was kind of viewed fairly sceptically, and you know the level of and awards of damages for psychiatric injury was at a very low level because of the general attitude out there that, you know, it's kind of in your head kind of scenario and therefore because it's psychological or psychiatric that it's not as, if you like, real as a physical injury. So that has very much dissipated in the last number of years insofar as people now have come to realise the significance and the fact that, if you like, from a medical perspective, you know, psychiatric uh, or psychological injury is on par with and very similar to physical injury insofar as it's all part of the wound system. You know, we we don't just have the physical injuries, we have also the mental. So um, that's just a progressive view of it. Yeah. But and are those cases the, harder? Are those cases harder to, to prove, John? Yeah, well, in terms of it, not necessarily because... Okay. When you're looking, when you're looking at a situation, like if you if you take your standard uh, claim scenario, if you know what I mean, and you've got a psychological element to it, I call it psychological rather than psychiatric, but you know that general term uh, where there's in that when you're in that area, it's it's the same proofs as you would have with anything else. You you'd need an expert to say whether or not there is or is not you know, psychological sequelae and you'll often have a dispute and debate between both sides as to the extent of it or whether it's there at all and that, you know. But so, and that's kind of fairly common case when you're dealing with any piece of litigation that you have to prove your case beyond, you know, on a balanced probability and if you prove it and the court is satisfied that you've proven it, well then you're entitled to compensation right. and then it's just a question of level of compensation. But where, where it gets kind of problematic as such in this particular area is that where you're looking at a situation that, let's say, somebody suffers grief as a result of a traumatic event, that in itself is not compensated unless, you know, grief standing on its own is, is not sufficient to ground an action and compensation. And the funny thing, people often ask the question, and I have to say I've often asked myself, you know, when you're looking at the area of law, excuse me, and you're trying to establish whether or not somebody has or doesn't have a case, you kind of come back to basic principles when we all, anybody who's, who studied law will start when they're dealing in this particular area with that. We'll start with the case of Dunnall versus Stevenson, which is a very well-known case, or should be well-known to any student 
proven that they owe you a, a conducive care as a good neighbour. You then have to establish that they were in breach of that duty of care. Then you have to establish that whatever damage occurred as a result of that breach, that it was reasonably foreseeable. In other words, that it wasn't something that wouldn't have been expected or anticipated by somebody. So in the in the in the case in the case of where you're dealing with nervous shock, <clears throat> it was often the case that somebody mightn't be, if you like, directly involved. So for example, the, some of the cases, and we've had quite a lot of them in Irish law, insofar as we had early cases in Irish law that recognised the fact that you could ground a claim for what they called nervous shock. And one of the one, ones actually involved the rejunction where the, one of the employees was sitting in his office and uh, a train missed deciding where it was supposed to stop and came through his, his wall of his office didn't physically hit him and didn't physically cause him any physical injuries, but he he was fairly uh, psychologically shaken up as a result of it, as you can oh, imagine. I can imagine, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. But the big debate at the time was, can you actually make a claim? And there was a lot of scepticism out there for it. Can you make a claim for kind of non-physical injuries like that? Mm. And the Irish uh, courts said yes. Now, that hasn't always been the case insofar as it using the same response in the UK. But that's kind of moved on um, in the UK, but they still have kind of restrictions on how and under what circumstances you can successfully make a claim for psychological injury. And the the issue that they have with it, funnily enough, is, you know, again, when you go back to your Donovan season, when everybody thought, you know, the neighbour principle, okay, good neighbour scenario, will arise in every case. And therefore, in any case where you can prove that, if you like, somebody should have done better as a good neighbour, you have a case. Now, the thing about that was that the courts, the courts aren't immune to kind of public policy considerations or what's politically correct in the particular society at the time. Funny, I was talking to Fran last week about, uh, you know, we were talking about that case. I don't know, did you see it in paper where they're talking about taking a class action against one of the resorts in, I think it was Austria. Oh, yeah, yeah, COVID-19, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I was just saying to him that one of the interesting things about that you don't come, when you're studying uh, for your law exams and even years later, like me, when you're reading your case law, you sometimes forget that the courts have made all these rules, if you like, by case law. So it's not like you, like last week I was talking about cohabitation agreements and I was saying that cohabitation agreements are now recognised. So if you're living with somebody and you you actually enter into a legal agreement with them about who gets the house, about succession rights, about paying maintenance, about uh, things like that, you know, that that is recognised by statutes, in other words, by an act of, of our actors. So they pass law on it. And if you're in France, for example, almost all of their law is coded law. So in other words, good old Napoleon, you know, that's why he encoded all the law in France. So therefore, if you want to find out whether or not you have a right or you do or don't have a right, you look to a written document, which is like an act of the bureaucracy here in Ireland. In Ireland, we have, in addition to that, we have all this case law. So you hear words like precedence or that was the case that was heard and therefore I'm 
updated. So she saw this and she saw a huge amount of um, you know, carnage at the scene. Yeah, the I can only imagine the trauma. Oh, yeah. Well, she suffered then. Well, the other bottom line test on it was that she suffered a psychiatric uh, illness as a result of the accident. So that's your very first kind of test when you're looking at this is you can't just claim for the distress of watching it. Mm. You can't, like, for example, there's been quite a number of cases in Ireland where, which were really tragic cases where, for example, in one case, the wife was phoned to say that her husband and three children were involved in an accident. She went to the scene and she went to the hospital and on arriving at the hospital, she met in some absolutely horrific scenarios and one of the children died as a result and she then suffered a recognised post traumatic stress disorder reaction and stroke illness as a result and the defendants in defending the case were making the argument which they were unsuccessful in to the extent that she was suffering from grief and not from a recognised psychiatric reaction so you know that's your first line of argument you know do you, have you you know it's not just an open door in terms of having a reaction which is distress or otherwise that is not compensatable under the setting so okay. you're, you you must establish so i suppose the bottom line on it is yes it is claimable and in this particular scenario they ran a very interesting uh, case from a legal perspective maybe not from a humanity perspective, but they ran an interesting case from a legal perspective, literally saying that there was no duty of care at all to a rescuer and that under, under those circumstances, the the door should be closed on claims because if you open it, you're going to have a huge amount of claims mm-hmm. that are going to be made. So they, they ran that argument and they ran it unsuccessfully. And, and, and sorry if you said already, John, but who was this case taken against? It was taken against both the bus driver and the car driver because oh, okay. you, you you'll always now ultimately it was the car driver who took over the action if you know what I mean because the accident was as a result of the, the action of the car driver uh, so the, in that situation you'll always it's kind of a common enough thing is to, that you would sue both parties because you don't know who was responsible there at the time so the case was taken by against the car driver successfully. I mean, the only exception to grief, by the way, or to compensation for grief or distress as a result of a fatality, mm. is in fact, ironically enough, covered by statute. So, in terms of essentially there's case law and then there's statute law. Yeah. Uh, and in Ireland, there is statute law to cover a situation where somebody dies as a result of an accident and there's negligence in it. In those circumstances, you can take as um, a member of the family or if you have a close relationship with the deceased, you can in fact take an action which by statute is grounded on stress, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So you can actually do that. And, you know, the other, I mean, it's it's an area that, you know, comes up every now and then, but it's quite a recent, that's a recent enough case on the whole area and you would have thought that that whole point would be recently settled at this stage but they, and you just wonder whether it's are we looking at you know the thing about case law is that you can always have a situation where somebody will decide to challenge the fundamentals of it and in other words something that you might think is well recognized by case law 
somebody else will argue that it's not and under those circumstances they choose to change it and there's no reason now you see why the courts can't it used to be the case when I was studying law I remember studying uh, something called starry diseases uh, and I about telephone I love these Latin words but it's just a couple I learned when I was in college but the whole idea of starry diseases was and it was an amazing little principle as well as that if a higher court made a decision it bound all lower courts and also bound any court of similar jurisdiction so for example if the Irish Supreme Court said something everybody else had to follow it whether they liked it or not so you used to have these incredible judgments handed down there was one particular judge who was great a favourite of mine when I was studying called Lord Denning and he was your absolute maverick judge insofar as he made a huge amount of case law he ignored all precedent and that's probably not a very fair comment but he was a very brilliant judge very well written you could read his judgments anybody could read his judgments and understand it not something we can say about all judgments but Mm. you could read his judgments but he used to love making law and he used to absolutely ignore the whole principle of stare decisis and he wouldn't follow precedent and he'd make new laws or other. He was constantly being reversed by the higher courts who would come along and go, well, wait a minute here now. You can't create new laws as existing precedent now until they change just So now it's no longer necessarily the case. While a judge will a judge judge will respect other judgments and will follow them by and large. Uh, they don't feel bound if they think the case was wrong to say, well, I actually think it's, it's, it, uh, it should have been decided differently. You know? Right. And, and John, in terms of in terms of cases of involving uh, emotional trauma of, of some sort, are, mm. they, are they common mm. cases? Would you see them regularly enough? Well, you know, emotional trauma, as you might call it, um, isn't is something that you'll see as part and parcel of most actions they're talking about because if you if you take if you make a claim in, in any say personal injuries case I mean we all suffer the trauma of the injury we all suffer the psychological element of the trauma of the injury so by definition it's part of the pain and suffering that you have as a result of an action right. of an accident where where it gets tricky is where you have uh, an emotional reaction. I think you put it well when you say an emotional or kind of psychological reaction to something. When you're dealing with a psychological reaction to something and you're dealing with a situation where, if you like, you can point the finger at somebody and say, look, that wasn't very neighbourly of you to do that using the neighbour principle. The, the bottom line is what the courts are saying is that trauma of itself isn't sufficient. In other words, having being distressed as a result of it isn't sufficient. You you must have an established and recognised psychiatric uh, illness or psychological reaction as a result of it. And the one that we're all commonly aware of now, which has become very prevalent and, and very well recognised, is the post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. And if you look at the post-traumatic stress disorder, I think they're on version five or six of now at this stage because it it can be... I remember I was involved in a case where the issue came up as to whether or not the client was suffering from post-traumatic stress because they didn't... The argument that was being made by the other side was that there were five criteria. Well, it wasn't five, but let's say it was five criteria. And of the five criteria, he only fulfilled four of them and therefore didn't, according, didn't suffer from a recognised uh, psychiatric disorder. Right. Thankfully, we didn't, we didn't lose on that one, but that was the argument. You know what mm. I mean? It's, it's, it's fascinating, old, yeah. 
It's a, it, the whole thing is wrestling. The whole the, the final little point on it, of course, is that, and this is a very obvious one. But uh, when I say it's obvious, it's obvious when you can see it. But when you're studying it as a as a, as a lawyer, you're looking at it. Sometimes you forget that there has to be what they call a cause and nexus. That's a lovely little word, but there has to you have to you know somebody suffering a recognised psychiatric disorder must be able to have a link between that and the actual, if you like, shock that they received. So, in other words, uh, having a reckon, you know, the other argument that you can have, which is commonly made, is, well, that didn't happen as a result of the circumstances that we're talking about. That's something that happened and would have happened anyway. So it's a little bit like the scenario where somebody has a bad back as a result of an accident. And somebody says, well, actually, you had a bad back already. And as far as we're concerned, we didn't cause the bad back. We might have contributes a little bit to it, but only to a certain extent. You know, so there's always those interesting little nuances when you're looking at these things. And mm. the final one I'll tell you is that I'll tell you is that there was uh, there's often the argument as well that where you're looking at uh, stress that comes from an occupation of stress. So you know you have a situation where your job causes you stress, and that whole area of occupational stress. Also, a fascinating one as well, as to, and that is one which is probably not for discussion today, if you know what I mean, but that's the one that has provoked a lot of debate in both the UK, which is very similar to our type of jurisdiction in the yeah. sense of Belton case law, and our jurisdiction, which is down to the question of, you know, was it foreseeable, uh, you know, how much knowledge was there about the employer with. Should the knowledge, should the employer have had more knowledge and therefore been in a position to deal with the stress better? So you're in a whole area there where the courts are grappling with the whole policy considerations of saying, well, you can't have an open door on stress within the workplace and have it an actionable right. And then at the same time, you have to make ground rules as to under what circumstances. So that's the really, that's what makes it interesting in terms of trying to give you some sort of definitive answer on these things. Yeah, right? it's, it's all very, very interesting. I mean, that's a particularly interesting area, um, not one I'd, I'd actually thought of before, um, as we said, in terms of uh, emotional trauma and the cases that can be taken. But um, just to just to wrap up very quickly, John, we were just, we've, this is a subject that you've covered before, I know, but uh, we have a texture just asking, um, what happens if a husband or wife passes away suddenly without a will? Then you're dealing with the rules of, of intestacy. So in certain, it depends on whether there are children or not children. If there are no children, the, if there are no children, the estate will go to the other. Sorry, are we talking about one of the parties? Are sorry. It says uh, it just says. Can you ask John Lynch what happens if a husband or wife passes away suddenly? Yeah, yes. Or wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or wife. If there's no will and there's no children, the estate goes to the other. Um, the spouse, the surviving spouse. If there are children, it's two thirds, one third. So two thirds to the spouse, one third to the children. And then you have to do the practicality of that, obviously, depending on whether they're minor children or not, because obviously, if they're minor children, the other uh, parent will be the guardian of the children. And then you, you, have, you have other more technical issues on that. Right. Okay. Is that all right? That's yeah, that's all right with me anyway, John. Okay. <laughs> Listen, thanks well, very much. I mean, again, we're 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 still for anybody out there to listen to us. 
we're still operational. You can ring the phone in the office and and all that. We're still working away okay. as best we can in this circumstance. And you can get all those questions answered as well. And John, you'll exactly. be back with us. Uh, well, you'll be back with Fran okay. um, next next yeah, Tuesday. Yeah. You'll be glad to hear. Okay. Thanks very much well for. Well done. Well done. Uh, thanks very much best. for joining me this morning, John. All and that right, is our. Bye -bye.